Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Tom, for that uh, very interesting uh, reading of uh, the epistle lesson. I assume that was from the message as well? Yes, it was. It is. Thank you. Thank you. Eugene Peterson, uh, an excellent scholar, and, and he really uh, brings some clarity to that a very difficult passage. Folks, today, uh, I, uh, I was telling Sajino, uh, while I, this uh, sermon uh, this weekend is uh, easy, it's one I speak about all the time, and the, the focus uh, on the gospel passage uh, would be, in normal times, very much uh, something that would uh, uh, go in a particular direction that's tried and true and familiar for me. But uh, this week, I've been in turmoil. I don't know about you, but it's been very difficult. I, I received a text, in fact, just this morning uh, from a brother in Baton Rouge, uh, wondering if we are okay and, and that kind of thing as we look at what's happened here in Rochester. And I don't know what's grabbed you the most. I got to tell you what's grabbed me the most is um, one sentence I read uh, in a news account where uh, there was a there were families that were sitting in a restaurant an outdoor uh, seating because of COVID-19 I assume uh, and as the demonstration uh, demonstrators made their way in some way as a consequence of the of the demonstration uh, their table was overturned and as I appreciate it glass was broken and that kind of thing they were there as I imagined uh, perhaps an excitement um, about we're going to finally get out of our home. We're finally going to finally have a meal uh, <laughs> that wasn't uh, prepared at home. You know, we're we're going to finally get some fresh air and we're going to go out and enjoy, just enjoy the city. And without uh, realizing it, uh, they were caught up in this maelstrom that's in that's enveloping our country. That uh, that 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 image uh, really captured my imagination as I wondered it. I have been. Um, Funny that my mind has been swirling as I've tried to make sense of all the things that are happening in our country, uh, what's happening in our city, what's happening in our country, and most of all, how am I to respond? So Gene and I have been uh, actually trying to discern how are we to respond. We've gotten lots of invitations, lots of suggestions on how we ought to respond, um, uh, but 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 answering the question of how we are to respond is we're finding a little bit more problematic. Um, and when I'm unsure of how I am to respond to a particular stimuli of something happening in my life, I've learned that uh, it helps me to remind myself of who I am, to remind myself of who we are. Those are the questions that usually clear the air, clear the fog, and help me to see the path that leads to the still waters that my heart yearns to, to see. And uh, as, I, as I've gone about that in this last week, I've re reminded myself I have lots of identities, um, lots of identities. I'm, I'm husband, father, son, brother, uh, but most of all, two are, are fundamental. They, uh, they give me my highest values. They make me who I am. First and foremost, I am a Christ follower. I am Christian. Uh, and second, I am an American. I am an American Christian. I put the adjective, I make Mer an American an adjective in my life, uh, which is to say that I pursue my most important calling, my most important identity as one who, who seeks to live as a truth seeker, who seeks to uh, live with Jesus the Messiah as my Lord and Savior uh, in ways that are distinctively American, in ways that we, the people, have discerned are the means by which we, as a people, will proceed forward on, 
uh, in, in finding this life that is God's promise. And being part of, of we the people is the context that God has provided within which I uh, pursue my commitment, and I think we pursue our mutual commitment to live in the way of love uh, that uh, Jesus teaches us. So as I ask myself this question of who I am, of who we are, I'm struck by what appears to me today as a, as a real clash in our two lessons today. I, 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 I hope that you were struck by it. I was very much struck by uh, it. seems like they're almost irreconcilable differences. From Paul, we hear that love is the fulfillment of God's instruction on how we are to live with God and with each other. Love, it seems, is all about inclusion, about including all whom God loves within our own loving embrace. That's the way we fulfill Torah. That's the way God's law, God's instruction. It tells us that there are times when we ultimately must exclude certain things, certain behaviors, even certain folks from our communion. And that, particularly in our American way of living, is very tough to hear. There's a tension here that is very difficult to resolve at any time. And it's particularly difficult to resolve in swirling times such as these. So who are we? As I think about it, I think that what constitutes us as Christians, uh, whether we're Jew or Christian, is God's covenant with us. That is God's instruction on how to live with God and each other. You shall have no other God before me. That's God's instruction in its entirety. You don't need to really say more than that. You can, if you were taking a test, you could just scribble that at the top of your paper. At least I could. And, and that's all I need. I could unpack the rest of the Ten Commandments. They're, they're all derivative of that. They're really answering the how. So all you got to do is remember, I'm to love only God and no other gods, only the God of Jacob, only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only the God that you and I, whose story you and I tell in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm to love only that God and no other gods, no other gods that I create myself. And, and, and all the other commandments that Paul lists, um, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they're all summed up in this word, Paul tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. I want to take issue as an aside with one, trans, one translation difference here uh, from the New Revised Standard Version. I really appreciate this. Love your neighbor as yourself, which is a very literal translation relative to the one that we get from the message from Eugene Peterson, which I can't quite remember what Tom read for us, but it was something to the effect uh, uh, that, that, that uh, doesn't quite capture this notion of love your neighbor as yourself in the sense of love your neighbor as though your neighbor is inseparable from yourself. Your neighbor is part of you, which is the way you read it in the Hebrew as it appears in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as though your neighbor constitutes part of who you are. Love does no wrong. I'm sorry, folks. I'm getting a call from my son. <laughs> this time we're speaking here. Getting a call from my son at the, in the middle of worship. Um, so love your neighbor as yourself means love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of God's instruction to us on how we are to live 
with God and to live with each other. So what is love? That really begs the question, doesn't it? Well, on the cross and throughout his life and his teachings, Christ teaches us that love is what in Latin came to be known as caritas. It's the act of charity, the act of making space for another in your life, in our lives, in our communal life, so that they might flourish. Love is a self-emptying. It's a, a giving up of space that gives space to another. It gives space so that it makes it possible for them, too, to share in this superabundant feast that God has set before us. So who are we? We are the people committed to living according to this principle, to this way of love. We are ourselves. We fulfill we are fulfill our covenant with God and each other when we make space at the table with others for others to eat, when we empty ourselves so that others may experience the, the fullness of life that God intends for all. Of course, that's at the heart of all of this movement for black lives, isn't it? Uh, this is this prophetic word being spoken in our midst by those that we're called to love uh, in our midst, those who are part of our community who are telling us that, hey, we need to make space so that others might flourish. We've not done that well as a people. And so a prophetic word is being um, spoken about and telling us how we have missed the mark in that. When we do not do those things, we are not acting as ourselves. We are being less than ourselves, less than we are called to be. We miss the mark. And the name we give to missing the mark, to our missing of the mark, is sin. Sin. The name we give to our behavior when we don't make space so that another might live is sin. Which brings us to the uh, gospel lesson today. What do we do when we repeatedly, persistently sin? What do we do? Jesus provides this, this teaching that uh, scholars often refer to as the liturgy of reconciliation because it's a set of steps, a set of steps that Steve Burroughs read to us. Jesus tells us first to name the sin multiple times, first alone and then with others, and then before the whole people. Name it very publicly so that the whole people are aware that we are calling this out. We are, we are encouraging folks in our midst, in our community, to discern how their behavior is not the way of love so that they might correct their path, calling them to be who we are called to be. But if he, if that people, if, if that individual, if she tells us, um, you know, if they refuse, they then give us a message. They tell us that, um, uh, that they have made a decision in their own freedom. And when that happens, Jesus says uh, for us to do something that sounds pretty harsh. He says this, if the, mu if the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if someone is missing the mark and we call them out on it, if a people misses the mark and we call them out on it and they refuse to turn around, if they, if they insist on persisting in that behavior, we are to... Let such a person, such a group, be to us as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Well, Gentile is pretty easy because a Gentile, uh, speaking to a Jewish, Jewish audience, Jesus understood that his audience would have understood. A Gentile is someone who was not of the community, uh, who saw themselves constituted by the covenant with God. They are not so constituted. They don't share with us these commitments. They don't share with us uh, 
this this uh, promise they don't share with us this this covenantal obligation to live in such a way. So treat them as a people who don't have that type of responsibility and therefore don't also share in some of the benefits of living under such responsibility. They are not part of of that circle of intimacy. You treat them like a tax collector. A tax collector is a very interesting um, biblical uh, role. The tax collectors, as you know, uh, were Jewish, but they were Jews who had sought to further themselves, not by self-emptying, but pocket, but by pocket emptying. They were the ones, excuse me, by pocket filling. <laughs> uh, they were the ones who, uh, as Jews, contracted with the principles, with the powers, with, with the government of King Herod, with the government of Rome, to go and collect as much as 25% of the crops as taxes uh, from their own people. So they would, uh, they would go about that, and it was very harsh because that often resulted in evicting people from their land when they couldn't pay. It sometimes uh, meant uh, some, for some really harsh uh, winters. And, uh, and they took a, a share. They were bounty hunters in a sense. They, they took a share of whatever they collected as their own, and they, they enriched themselves on their own people. So they were something of a parasite. Uh, in World War II, the French had a name for those who collaborated with the, uh, the Nazi government. They called them the collaborators. Uh, and that wasn't a, a, um, a compliment. Uh, the, the tax collectors were collaborators in the, in the sense that they uh, got rich off the backs of their own people. And so Jesus says, when someone makes this decision to continue acting in the way that we who understand ourselves to be constituted by a covenant with God uh, says is missing the mark, and when they persist in this path, let them be like one of these folks here who are tax collectors, who live by a different set of rules and therefore uh, relinquish uh, their seat in, in our, at our innermost tables of, of communion. In other words, their decision, we are to acknowledge that their decision that they make in their freedom to be constituted by a different way of being than ours, by their decision to walk apart from our community. We're simply acknowledging their decision to walk apart from our community, to walk in some other way than, uh, uh, you know, some other way of their own choosing that is very distinct from our way and such and as such they're choosing not to be constituted constituted as we it doesn't say notice that we are to see such folks as enemies jesus doesn't tell us to say to that we are to shun them he doesn't say that we are to stop loving them but it does say that we are to acknowledge in a visible way in a public way that they've chosen a path that is not our own that they're choosing to live in a way that is not our own and and as such are renouncing their seat in our innermost circle of friendship and intimacy. That is, to the extent that they persist in walking a path that is not the way of love, we can't go with them. We cannot walk with them. Now, all of this, I, as I think about our current situation, I, I'm reminded of a, of a passage that uh, we, we uh, uh, see frequently in the lectionary, the, the passages in each of the Gospels in which we're reminded of Jesus's uh, phrase of take up your cross. Take up your cross, you may not know, was a recruiting slogan originally. There were lots of rebellions against Rome, and there were lots of folks who wanted to throw off the shackles of the Roman suppression, 
the Roman oppression. And, and so, so take up your cross was a recruiting slogan for the tax revolts that, that appeared particularly along, along the paths of Galilee and the, and, the, and the region of Galilee during Jesus's lifetime. And take up your cross meant be bold, let's revolt against the Romans. We know they will put us on the cross, but have the courage to take up that cross and, and, and don't fear being crucified so that we throw off the suppression uh, that uh, we're experiencing. This, this uh, thinking later became the thinking of the group that became known as the Zealots. The Zealots insisted on violence, on a military response, that the way to our freedom, the way to justice was violence. And, and it ultimately gave the pretext, the Zealots ultimately gave uh, through their, their organized assassinations of Roman uh, collaborators, uh, they gave the pretext for the Roman army to march upon Jerusalem and destroy the holy city. And let me phrase that again. It gave them the pretext for a law and order regime. It gave the excuse for a law and order regime to come in and destroy the holy city, this movement to violence. Jesus taught us that the way we are to take up the cross is not to pick up a sword, but to get on our knees. And so Jesus, as he so often did, took something that was well known and gave it a new meaning. He reframed it. So for us, Jesus said, take up your cross according to the way of love means to kneel before uh, your neighbor and to love them and to cherish them, to be peacemakers not war makers. Take up your cross is to go this very difficult uh, path that will get you crucified, but not just by the Romans, but by your own people, because it's such a powerful way. And of course, we are familiar with how that ended up uh, so many times in history as people have sought to be peacemakers. Nothing more violent than being peacemaker uh, to the hearts of those who want power now. I uh, mention all this because I've received one of the encouragements I've received and perhaps you've received is, uh, is, a, is an invitation to get on the streets and, uh, and, and, to, and to pick up arms and to, to be a part of those who uh, are in the fray in the midst of, of, of the protest, uh, including being willing to take up uh, uh, rocks and to take up uh, the canisters of tear gas and to break windows and those types of things. I had a, a clergy friend who who sent me something recent says, if you're not with us, you're against us. Friend or foe, the way to justice is to stop talking and simply to demand the justice we seek, to use violence if necessary to insist on the justice that we seek. And in this case, we're talking about the racial justice that is so lacking in our country, the, the racial justice that uh, has evaded us for since, since our, our beginning as a country. It's right for us to insist on social justice, no question. But I'm reminded of something that Thomas Jefferson uh, wrote in the Declaration of Independence. Now, uh, you're familiar, of course, all of us are with the first part, the one that we're talking about when we speak of racial injustice. We're, we're saying that we hold these truths to be self-evident. We don't need someone to explain this to us. They're self-evident that we are created equal, that they are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all memorized those things when we were kids, but, but Jefferson didn't stop there. The very next words are important. They're, they're crucial to our understanding. Jefferson wrote this, that to secure these rights, 
governments are instituted among men, deriving just powers from uh, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. I mention that, and I'm caught by that because this passage in which Paul is writing about love and telling us that love is the way we fulfill the law is written in chapter 13 of Romans, which is itself a treaty, an entire section about how we are as Christians to live under Rome, under the power of Rome. It's about how we live as a people governed, and, uh, and his answer is we live, live, um, live according to this law of love. And, and Jefferson um, also brings in this notion of a government that's providentially provided. It provides the context of our living this life of love. I want to remind you also about John Adams, who was also part of that drafting committee from the Declaration of Independence. Later, he wrote to a militia uh, in Massachusetts, and he said this, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That's not all he said. He also wrote, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry. Uh, these would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. In other words, our government wasn't built to force persons to be moral. Instead, it depends, it presupposes on our uh, it, it, it depends on and presupposes our own morality for our constitution to work. I was sharing uh, a more modern example of, of, of how we go, we miss the mark in, in pursuing good aims. Uh, when I was thinking about John Lewis, uh, I've mentioned him many times in recent weeks for good reason. Um, but what I've not, the one I've not spoken of was, was someone who was a buddy of his originally, who was a, a fellow freedom rider uh, in the Mississippi, um, the Mississippi freedom riders who would get on those buses. There was John Lewis, and there was another one who ultimately shoved John Lewis out as the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, Stokely Carmichael. Uh, Stokely Carmichael was was one trained. Uh, by uh, Dr. Lawson in the in the principles of nonviolence, but over time he became disillusioned. He, he became convinced that peaceful means would not bring about uh, the the justice they seek, and he ultimately became the head of the Black Panther movement. Ultimately, uh, left the United States, uh, uh, you know, behind uh, Nixon's. Uh, imperative to J. Edgar Hoover that he, that he bring about the law and order regime. I, I mention this um, because uh, this 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 uh, shift that happened. Carmichael shoves John Lewis out. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee moves to uh, it basically gives up a lot of its commitment to nonviolence and picks up this more militant approach. And it provides the context for Nixon's law and order regime, which we can then trace um, all the way to the massive incarcerations and the excuses for the massive incarcerations that violate the 13th Amendment, the 13th Amendment of so many persons of color in this day. In other words, this pivot, this decision to seize justice in our own hands and not wait on God 
led to the destruction of the holy city in the case of the zealots and it's led to the destruction the, the actually the 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 the, the uh, the loss of much of, of many of the gains that were made in the civil rights movement uh, when when that decision was made in the mid '60s, the law and order regime got its excuse to destroy the temple. My suggestion. The prophet Amos said something that uh, Martin Luther King quoted so many times. It said, he, it, it, "The prophet Amos said, but let justice roll down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream." Let justice roll down his waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. That was our dream. That was Amos's dream. It was the dream for the people of Israel. It was, it was, those were words calling the people of Israel to be the covenantal people they were always called to be, calling them out for their sinfulness, calling them out for missing the mark, calling them out for not making a space for others to live, that, for, for, for stealing the food that God had set aside. Uh, for all peoples and, and coveting it themselves, for refusing to love as we are called to love each other. The prophet Amos said that justice rolled down his waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. But the way that we achieve that justice for all, the way we be one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, is by refusing to give in to our own tendency to sin our own tendency to take justice into our own hands and to give up this practice of the way of love and, and instead to walk in another way, to walk apart from the ways of the beloved community. As a Christian, I believe it's always possible that you might have the prophetic word that I so desperately need to hear, the word, the prophetic word that calls me out of my sinful ways. And so I defend your rights to speak that word for the benefit of us all. As an American, I defend that right also. And as, Warren, and as one who, like many of you, was a veteran, is a veteran, who, who held up my right hand and swore to protect our Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, I defend your right to peacefully demonstrate, to peacefully speak that prophetic word that we so desperately need to hear. But as soon as you pick up that rock, as soon as you pick up that bottle of tear gas, as soon as you break glass, I must say to you, you have missed the mark. And so I call you out on it. And I think that's the way I'm sorting things out these days, folks. We are called to be the beloved community. We are called to people, be the people who stand still. Stand, stand, not sit, stand, and stand still silent before God and trust in God to bring us, if we live the way of love, into the promised land that we're only seeing the first fruits of now. I pray that we as a community will share that word, will we'll be that people, will encourage everyone we know to be that people, to be the ones we are constituted to be. And that we'll do that by turning to prayer, by, by speaking the prophetic word in, in, in loving ways, and, uh, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, as we're called to. So let's be that people, Lord. Let us be that people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.